But that's what I want to study again with you this morning is this whole question about really trusting the Word of God. Last Sabbath, we began to explore that, and we looked a little bit at some of the apparent contradictions in Scripture, but how many of them are easy to be explained if we'll take a little time to look at the full picture. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying all of them are that easily explained, but we, as we look at things in the Word of God, we really can come away with a sense of the arguments that people make for not trusting it really don't carry a lot of weight. Now, sometimes we might ask or somebody might ask us, you know, why do you think I really should depend on the Word of God? And oftentimes we'll respond with an appropriate response, which might be something like this, because the Word of God has changed my life. Could you say that? Certainly. I think that each one of us, I, I pray at least, that each one of us, and if it's not true, I appeal to you to open your hearts to the Holy Spirit and to the Word of God and let Him change your life. But there is power in the Word of God to transform us. And that power is through the Holy Spirit, which inspired the Word of God. And so oftentimes we'll respond like that and say, you know, well, I sense God speaking to me, and that's true. However, a Muslim might say the same thing. I sense the Quran speaking to me. Or um, a, a Mormon, one of their main tenants, if they would come to visit you in your home, they would share something, and then they would say, you know, don't you really sense something moving in your life? And, and so there's a little bit of a danger of the subjective, personal side. Do you see my point there? Now, that's not to say the subjective, personal isn't important. It is. But, you know, how do we really say the Word of God is reliable? Can we really depend on it? And there are lots of answers to this question. Um, certainly, the Bible is very different than, uh, say, the Quran or <clears throat> the Book of Mormon in terms of its, how it communicates actual historical events. I mean, the Bible claims to deal with events that took place in history, particularly the greatest event, which was what? The, the what? The cross, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the greatest event where we really see what God is like, rooted in history, but comes to us through the word of God. So let's uh, turn to Revelation chapter 22. We begin to explore this question, is the Bible reliable? Again, and I appreciate Richard reading that. He's got a great reading voice, doesn't he? None. So, uh, or great speaking voice. I think like the next time he's elder in charge, he should preach. What do you guys think? Right? Amen. <clears throat> Sorry, sir. Um, Revelation chapter 22, starting in verse 18, to the end of this great prophetic book where John says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy. It's interesting. Revelation opens, Revelation 1-3, with a blessing on those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things which are written in it for the time is at hand. 
So John ends the same way. I'm testifying to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. And then he gives this warning. If you want to add something to the book, if you want to embellish, we could say, what will be added to you? Plague. So the warning is, well, don't add anything. Uh, there's a warning for us to be very careful how we interpret prophecy. And then he goes on to say in verse 19, and if anyone takes away from the words of the, the book of this prophecy, in other words, if we want to lessen the meaning of it, what will be the result? You will, your part in the tree of life and the holy city and all the things that are written in here will be taken away as well. Verse 20, he who testifies these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. It's interesting. In this one chapter, seven times, the word come is used. You jump back to verse 7. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. This book. Verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly. And he says his reward is with him. Verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, let me hear it. Come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life freely. So this great invitation to come in the setting of the return of Jesus Christ. Behold, I'm coming quickly. He's coming quickly. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And so in this setting at the end of the book, where it's you know, talking about the second coming and urging us to be ready, inviting us, entreating us to take the water of life is this two-versed warning. Don't tamper with the word of God. Really important, especially as we're drawing closer to the end of, end of time. More important, as we see the day of Christ approaching, and as I mentioned last week, there are many people that do question, can you really have confidence in the word of God? You know, what about all those contradictions? Or, or what about this or what about that? And so let's kind of um, continue to explore that. But before we do, let me just give you some background about this don't add or don't take away. Um, John is really referencing three passages in the book of Deuteronomy. And if you're interested, you can jot those down or, or turn there. But in, those, in the first two passages, Moses, as he wrote the book of Deuteronomy, said something very similar. Don't add and don't take away. And turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Let's look at that text. Deuteronomy 12, 32 is one of the three. There's also Deuteronomy 4, verses 1 and 2 and Deuteronomy 29, 19 to 20. But let's look at Deuteronomy 12, verse 32. Notice how God recounts the words of Moses. Deuteronomy 12, verse 32. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to to do it, to follow it. Deuteronomy 12, 32. You shall not do what? Add to it or take away from it. Again, the same thought, um, very important. But what's really intriguing is the next verse. 
And in some of the ancient Hebrew manuscripts, chapter 13 actually begins with the last verse of chapter 12 because there's a connection here. Chapter 13 begins to talk about false prophets and false teachings. And so, you know, this setting, this warning, don't take, don't add, in, it, in its setting in the scripture is really talking about false prophetic teachings, um, misrepresentation of God's word. It's talking about a false idolatry, a false worship. All of these things John is warning against. So let's turn back to Deuteronomy, excuse me, to chapter 22 of Revelation uh, as we look at this verse a little more closely. Again, in this passage, Revelation 22, verse 18, you know, there's a, in the whole passage, rather, there's the blessing for hearing the word of God. Verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the word of the prophecy. There's a blessing there, but then there's that negative warning don't add, don't take away. Now, it's interesting, as we read through Revelation, uh, 13 times John is told to write. And who's telling John to write? Yeah, well, sometimes it's the Father speaking, and sometimes it's Jesus speaking. But 13 times through the book, he's told, write, write this, write this, write this, write this. It's not as if, or at least if we believe John, and that's a good question for us, but John's telling us, I didn't make this up. God is telling me to write this. And in one of the great places, chapter 21, he says, write because these words are faithful and true. There is going to be an end to this world of sorrow. There is going to be an end to suffering. Jesus is going to come. God's people are going to see him face to face. And it's almost like, oh, I can't hardly believe that. And then it says, write because these words are faithful and true. Revelation 21.5. And so over and again, as we read through Revelation, is this insistence that this is really God's word and it is dependable. We can depend upon it. But as I mentioned last week, uh, this article in the Newsweek magazine, one of the questions that people raise about the word of God is, you know, it's just been copied so many times. We don't have the original writings. And because we don't have the original writings, we know that there are differences in the copies of the writings we have. Let me put this a little more strongly. We don't have the original writings. We have copies, right? But we don't have copies of the original. We don't even have copies of copies of the original. We really don't even have copies of copies of copies of the original. I mean, there's, there's the, we, the originals are lost. Wouldn't that be exciting if someone found one? An archaeologist, you know, digging around in Egypt, you know, found a Paul's handwriting on it? That would be, I think it would be exciting. So, but there are differences in the copies that we do have. And that leads some people to conclude that the Bible is not reliable. So let's explore that idea together. And, you know, kind of think through, is that really true? I mean, it sounds very persuasive. Hey, we really don't know what the original was because there's all these different copies out there and they disagree. And, and so how can you trust the Bible? Um, so a couple of things. First of all, let's think about the Old Testament. How is the Old Testament copied? Now, this is really intriguing because the Old Testament was copied by very professional scribes. 
And uh, there's good evidence that the ancient Jewish scribes that transcribed it, first of all, they would count the number of times a letter uh, occurred in a particular book. So they'd go through the book of Genesis, count each letter, and, and they would make sure they knew the number of letters. And then when they copied it, they'd go back and count every letter. They would go back and count every letter. They wouldn't like Google in, well, how many letters are in G Genesis? They would go back and count to make sure it matched up. That's pretty amazing. That's not the only thing that the ancient Hebrew scribes did. They found the middle letter of the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible, all the, or the Torah. And it's a letter, it's a vav in the book of Leviticus, in case you're interested. Um, and, and they would find that middle letter, and then they would count in, and oh, yeah, that's okay. This manuscript is good. Anybody that kind of detail here? Where's... Krista, she's detailed here. Whoops. Um, sorry, I lost my connection. And they also identified the middle level letter of the whole Hebrew Bible. Uh, you know, so that's, if you want to figure that out, uh, you know, so very intentional. In fact, um, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and they compared them with the copies of the book of Isaiah that we have, you know, Isaiah 53, you know, the only differences were totally minuscule. There was like one letter difference. Very, very amazing how the Old Testament Hebrew scholars transcribed the Old Testament. The New Testament was a slightly different case. And so what would happen in the New Testament? There were two different ways. Sometimes you'd get a group, a group of um, scribes together, and they would be in a room, and somebody would stand up and read. And everybody else would have to write. So a person would be up there, and they would be reading uh, from the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave uh, him to show to his bondservants the things which are soon to take place. And he sent and communicated this by a servant, John. And on, and they would just write as they were going through the process. Other scribes would have a manuscript in front of them, and they would begin to transcribe it by hand. Just so you can visualize this, one of the scribes wrote in the margin of the Bible he was working on, he was telling us the weather. And he says, it was a big snowstorm while I was doing this. It was so cold, the ice froze, my fingers froze, and the pen dropped from my hand. I mean, you know, these guys were working away in very difficult conditions. Would it be surprising if they made a mistake? Not really. Um, so let's, let's think about that. One guy wrote at the end of the book, uh, in the little margin, he said, end of the book, thanks be to God, I'm finished. You know? <laughs> I mean, imagine that this is what you're doing. You know, you're writing this. Very painstaking, no lights, some Old Te New Testament scribes actually were professionals, and they put little dots along the side of their manuscripts, and those dots indicated what they would get paid for. So that was a professional. They would do a slightly better job. Now, some people will say, yes, but if somebody's copying, and they're copying, and they're copying, isn't that like playing the game of telephone? 
So what is, you know, you know the game of telephone. I whisper something uh, in somebody's ear, and, you know, I whisper to Paul, and Paul whispers it to Paula, or uh, there's that, what's that game, Vivian? Sorry, Telestrations, where you draw a picture. Do you guys know that game? So, you know, anyway, and you try to figure out what, um, what this means, and you write it, and something gets lost in the translation, right? And so critics say that you cannot depend on it. Well, what's wrong with that illustration? What's the difference between telephone and the way these copies are being replicated? Okay, well, word of mouth versus written, those are two very different things. If something's written, I can always go back and check. What else? On the game of telephone, if I whisper something to Paul, it's one person to one person. But in copying manuscripts, it's one manuscript, and five people get it copied. And then those five people have five other people copied it. You have a, a multiplication. Now, is it possible that there could be mistakes? Well, of course it's possible. Um, and again, you know, the number of manuscripts is really astonishing. I'm not going to bore some of you with all those statistics, but it's really amazing how this works. And so let me try to give you an illustration uh, from a Christian by the name of Greg Kukul, and he, he uses this illustration called Aunt Sally's Sauce. So let's imagine you have an Aunt Sally, and, you know, she has this dream one night where she figures out a certain elixir that'll be like a fountain of youth. She gets up in the morning, and she goes to the kitchen, and she gets it, and she stirs it up, and she puts it on her face, you know, one of those creams, and, you know, the next day, she looks a little bit younger, like, wow, this is really fantastic. She sells it to Marsha and to Sherry, and they start using it in their shops, and, um, and, and so, but what Aunt Sally does is she tells some friends about this, and she gives them the recipe, and they give it to some friends of theirs, and then one day, Sally's dog eats the recipe. And so Sally calls her four friends and says, my dog ate the recipe, do you have it? And her four friends say, you know, our dogs ate the recipe too. But they all gave those copies to some friends. So they all get the other friends, and they get about 26 copies back into the house. And as they compare the copies, they notice a couple of things. Somebody misspelled a word. Somebody wrote mix and chop instead of chop and mix. Somebody had an ingredient that none of the others had. Do you think if you compare those 26, you'd be able to figure out what the original was? Sure. Really, really close. You'd say, well, you know, chop and mix, mix and chop. Well, of course you chop before you mix, so that's a mistake. And this one has an ingredient and none of the others do, so obviously that's a mistake. And, oh, yeah, this person doesn't know how to spell whatever. Um, and, and so you'd be able to put together what the original was, or at least you'd be 99.9% sure of what the original was. That's very similar to the way it is with the New Testament. There are differences in these copies, but the confidence that you and I can have that this is what God inspired people to say is through the roof. It is so high. Well, let's, let's look at a little bit at some of the 
errors that people might make. Let's kind of think of some of the mistakes that somebody might, that might be making. So first of all, you're a scribe now. You're not sitting here comfortably in the church. You're a scribe. You're in a little cell someplace because most scribes were monastics. They were in a church, and they were in these little tiny cells, and you had a candle, and, and you didn't have such nice glasses. Would it be possible to make some mistakes of eyesight? Of course. You know, maybe, you're, maybe you are reading a line, and the word en- one line ends with the word fish, and the next line ends with the word fish, and you wrote fish, and then you look down, and you, maybe you just skip a line. You know, there are mistakes of eyesight, and that happened in scriptures. Uh, maybe if you were in one of those places where somebody was reading, <coughs> and they were reading out loud, so for example, if they said the word there... How do you spell that? Well, it depends on the context, right? But you could spell the word there different ways. If you're like my daughter, you probably could spell it multiple ways. But, um, you know, you could just hear it and make a mistake. And so that happened. Is it possible that you could switch some letters around? Let me give you some real examples, if you will. This is from John chapter 130. None of you, I'm sure, will have in your translations, electronic or otherwise, the first mistake. This is from John 1.30. John is saying, and in the bottom part is what your Bible will say, after me comes a what? After me comes a man. Now, notice the Greek letters. I put them up here for you. Um, And notice there's four of them, a nair. After me comes what? Air. There is a manuscript that says, after me comes air. Well, obviously, what happened? He dropped off the new, which looks like the. You know, now, why doesn't your Bible translate it that way? It doesn't make any sense. And most of the differences, most of the supposed errors are like this. Maybe somebody spelled something wrong, maybe... Just very little, little changes that are almost, not almost, they are inconsequential. Uh, let's look at a different one. 1 John 1, 4. Depending on your translation, will depend on how it reads. Um, some of you, your translation will read, your joy may be full. Other translations will read, our joy must, must, might be full. In English, what's the difference? One letter. What? You dropped a letter out. Um, in Greek, it's not exactly quite like that, but it's, it's fairly similar. Does it really change the meaning? No. And so most of everything is really like this. There were accidental slips as these people are doing what they could to transcribe the word of God, believing that it has power to change people's lives. So they were trying to be really careful but they were fallible just like you and me. Did you ever, like, text and misspell something? <laughs> ever? Other errors were, or other changes, let's say, were intentional. Now, this gets people nervous because if it's intentional, that means, you know, they have a reason why they're doing this. And... and People on both the conservative and the liberal spectrum 
can think up very interesting conspiracies as to why people would change things. But what are some of the reasons that people would make an intentional change? Well, let's look at a couple of examples together. Interestingly enough, there's a uh, manuscript in the book of Hebrews where one of the scribe was changed something. And then another scribe who was transcribing came along and he wrote in the margin, you knave, why can't you leave the older reading alone? <laughs> I mean, he noticed that this guy had changed it and he said, come on, stop that. So what kind of changes are there? Well, first of all, there are grammatical changes. As people read through certain parts of the New Testament, particularly the book of Revelation, there is some grammar that seems unusual, so somebody wanted to change it. Very innocuous, harmless change. Sometimes the scribe wanted to try to make things clearer. Okay? I think this isn't clear. I want to clarify it for you. So let me give you an example of that. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. And verse 2. Someone read that for us. Mark 1 in verse 2. Nice and loud. Nice and clear and loud. Okay, now notice the first part of that, depending on your translation, what your translation was? Uh, ESV. ESV, English Standard Version. It says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Anyone else have a different translation? As it is written in the prophets. Okay, so here's the difference. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet or as it is written in the prophets. Does it make a big deal? Yes or no? It's really fairly inconsequential. But why would this change take place? Well, a very simple answer. The quotation in verse 2 comes from where? It comes from the book of Malachi. The quotation in verse 3 comes from the book of Isaiah. So Mark uses two different Old Testament sources, Malachi and Isaiah, but he, at least according to that translation, prefaces it by saying, in the prophet Isaiah. Now, a scribe coming along, reading that, could think, well, no, that's not right. That's not Isaiah the prophet. That's Malachi. And so I'm going to change that to the prophets. And so he's trying to make things clearer. Did he succeed? Yeah, maybe. You know, is it what Mark originally wrote? Probably not. Uh, Mark probably wrote in Isaiah because Isaiah, Mark was probably thinking big picture here. Um, sometimes Bible writers try to compare, con, try to harmonize passages of Scripture. And so let's look at one of these examples. Turn with me. Um, well, don't turn with me anywhere yet. Well, turn to Gospel of Luke. Sorry. Turn to Luke. And what we're looking at here is Matthew 6, 9 through 14, and Luke 11. But don't read it yet. Just put your finger in Luke chapter 2, um, or get there electronically. Luke 2, but don't look at it, because this is where the Lord's prayer is. And I want to test your memory. How does the Lord's prayer go? Don't read it. What? Okay, our Father. That's a good beginning, anyway. Luke 
chapter 11, verse 2. Someone else read that from a more modern translation. Okay. Did you notice? When you pray, say, what's missing? Our. Well, it's there in Matthew. If you read Matthew 6, it's there, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be his name, as we usually memorize it. But apparently when Luke wrote his gospel, he didn't write the word our there. But some scribe thinking, well, really it's there in Matthew, let's harmonize them. He would write the word our Father there. Again, is that threatening to any teaching? Is it threatening to the integrity of the word of God? Of course not. What the scribe's trying to do is, you know, harmonize things, make things better, and he may have even done it unconsciously. You know, I ask you to say the Lord's Prayer. It's it's hard to just say, Father, who's in heaven. No, it's our Father, because that's the way we've memorized it. And the scribe may have done the same thing as well. The last intentional changes that scribes may have made were doctrinal. And this is you know, where the biggest question comes from. And um, again, people could say, have all sorts of theories as to why they made these doctrinal changes. But let me give you a, a couple of examples. Let's turn to Luke chapter 23. Excuse me. Luke 2, verse 33. Luke 2, verse 33. And somebody that has the King James, would you read that for us? Luke 2. Verse 33. Oh, yes. King James. That's thank you. That's exactly right. What does it say? And Joseph and his mother marveled at them. Anyone else have a modern translation? Would you read that for us? And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Oh, notice the difference. One says Joseph and his mother. The other said his father and his mother. Which one do you think somebody would have changed? Do you think somebody would have changed Joseph to his father? Or do you think they would have changed his father to Joseph? Why? Because he's a son of God. And I don't want anybody to even begin to think that Joseph is his father. Now, later on in Luke, even in the King James, it calls Joseph his father. So whoever made the change wasn't very consistent. But... The point is, somebody's thinking, I really want to be careful here with the divinity of Christ, and so let me change this to make it harmonize. And there's a couple of other examples like that. One more major one. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. You're groanings already. 1 John chapter In verses 7 and 8, someone read those two verses. 1 John 5, 7 and 8. Yeah. Okay, well, that's good. What translation is that? It's International Standard Version. Version. Very short. It seems like something is missing. Someone else have the King James? Richard, you want to read that for us? Okay. Do you notice there's a large phrase there? That's included in one and not in the other. What's included there is there's three in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. 
That's a very old text, but it's not found in any copies, Greek copies, of the letter of 1 John. Somebody apparently thought it would make good sense, and it does make good sense, but they kind of probably wrote it in a margin, and then eventually it migrated into the text to try to make a point. So, now, can we prove, can we give evidence that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-eternal throughout eternity without this Bible verse? Of course we can. You know, our understanding of the nature of the Godhead doesn't depend on this one verse. But most of the changes were either accidental, and those that were intentional are very inconsequential. There's a handful, less than a handful, really, of any that have any kind of significance, but none of them lower our confidence in the Word of God. And that's what's really important. Why? Because the Word of God does have power to change your life. And when the future looks perplexing and you can't see God's plan, trust His Word. No matter what happens, no matter what kind of criticisms come or questions that come or, or issues that we even wrestle with, you can trust the Word of God. The same Word that spoke this world into existence, that same power, that same creative power is in the Word of God. And as you and I come in contact with the Word of God, it has power to change us. It's the Holy Spirit molds our life and we put into action what he teaches us. So let's go back to the book of Revelation again. The question for us, am I growing by the word of God? Uh, an interesting quotation here, um, written in the 1800s. Some say, don't you think that there might have been some mistake in the copyists or in the translators? This is all... What's the word? Probable. And the mind that will hesitate and stumble over this would, just, would be just as ready to stumble over the mysteries of the inspired word because they cannot see the purposes of God. Just because some copyist made a mistake doesn't undermine the confidence that you can have in God's word. So at the end of the book of Revelation, there's all this call to us Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me. I'm coming quickly. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm coming quickly. Even so, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. As you and I are moving closer and closer to that date of the second coming, the question is, are we being more responsive to the word of God? Are we allowing the word of God to have full reign, full control, full formative power in each one of our lives? Revelation 22, again in verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. What's the response of the church? Amen. Amen. Come. Lord Jesus. That should be the response of our hearts. He's coming. Lord, I want you to come. I want your word to break the power that the attractions of the world have over my life. I want your word to have transformative effect. I want your word to, to guide me when I'm in dark places. 
I want your word to be a source of comfort for me when everything else is perplexing. And brothers and sisters, there is going to come a time when every earthly support will be cut off among us. And all we'll have to depend on is the word of God. We're becoming more familiar with that word right now. Are we studying it? Are we learning it? Are we putting it in our minds, in our hearts? Are we memorizing it? Are we making it applicable to our individual life? I pray that we do. Flawed Bible? No, the Bible's not flawed. My character is flawed. That's what's flawed. Amen. I heard that. Um, <laughs> sorry. I set myself up for that one. I'm sorry. It's true. Our characters are flawed. But God's word is not. And it has power to make us right and keep us that way. So we are in this new year. Let's spend time knowing God through his word. Let's pray together. Father, it's our desire, it's our choice this morning to be fitted to live with you for eternity. I pray, Father, that you would lead us in the path that you see best to accomplish that choice. Thank you again for your word. May it be our guide, our comfort. May it speak to our hearts. May it inform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.